Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We have received the reading from the word of the Lord given to us by God the Holy Spirit for the instruction of his people. Receive it for its intended purpose. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can be under the authority of your holy word, that in a changing world is the only word that remains unchanging. But Father, we know that we need to be changed to become more like Christ. And so would you work in and through us this morning, give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we contemplate your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, let's review a little bit of what we have seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount. We saw that Jesus went up the mountain, taking the posture of the prophet, and he sat down taking the posture of a teacher, and he began to teach on the proper understanding of the law, showing how the law pointed to him, how he ultimately was the real goal and intention of the law. And he concluded that section by saying that the righteousness of his disciples must surpass the righteousness of the Jews and the Pharisees if they were to get into heaven. And of course, that is a righteousness that only Christ can give, for Christ is the one to whom the law and the prophets point. And then he began to talk about the difficult issues that they would have to deal with, getting to the heart of the matter and how Christ transforms our hearts. And so he instructed us on the difficult issues of anger and lust and marriage and divorce and getting even and loving your enemies, focusing on what the new heart looks like for those who are now residents of the kingdom of heaven. And then he spoke on how to pray in a way that is honoring to God and how to practice the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and giving. And he said, and when you do these things, not if you do these things. He's taught us how to view material possessions in light of the true treasure that is the kingdom of heaven. He's taught us how to not be anxious, but to consider the creator and how he takes care of creation. So surely he will take care of his children warning us, don't be like the pagans, but be like my children who live differently because they have a different heart and they'll have a different understanding. And now as we get into chapter 7, the emphasis will begin to change again. He moves from dealing with attitudes of the heart and practices of faith to now how to deal with outsiders and how to deal with our neighbors. He will bring back the issue of prayer that we'll see next week. He will teach us how to recognize true and false confessions of faith. He will give warnings to those about who merely have Jesus on their lips but don't have Jesus in their lives. But today, Jesus is going to warn us about the issue of judgmental and harsh attitudes that we are tempted to have towards those we perceive as being somehow wrong. And the challenge that he will give us is to use the proper standard in our judgments that shows the reality of hearts that have been renewed by the Spirit of God and obedience to the word of God. And so as you follow along in your sermon outline, we come to our first major point this morning. Do not judge harshly. Let me give a few words of greetings to those that are joining us online. Thank you for being with us this morning. 
I trust wherever you are, you have your Bibles open and you're studying along the Word of God with us and we look forward to you being with us as soon as possible, returning from vacation, returning from a time of illness. Do not judge harshly. Jesus turns away now from talking about personal needs that we all have, food and clothing and drink, to warning about negative attitudes that we might have towards others. Do not be anxious, he says again and again. And now he would say, do not have a critical spirit towards others. Biblical knowledge and understanding, I think you will agree, in our culture is going down. But there remains two things that almost everyone knows about the Bible. They know that God is love, and they know that the Bible says, do not judge. The problem is that most people have no understanding of which either of these things mean. They don't really understand what it means that God is love because they separate it from the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. And they don't really understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, do not judge. And so this morning we're going to be dealing with one of the most misquoted and misused verses in all of the Bible. Far from giving permission to people to do whatever they want to do, because after all, who are we to judge? This passage will continue with the theme in the Sermon on the Mount of how to live as citizens of the kingdoms of, kingdom of heaven, even as we live among the kingdoms of men. Now, in the world in which we live, we are told that no judgments are allowed except against those who offer judgments. And there's no absolute truth except that there are no, well, there is no absolute truth, and they mean that absolutely. So, in, so of course, people live then in contradictions, trying to justify their own sin. As the, modern po as the postmodern philosopher Richard Rorty says, truth is what our peers let us get away with. And so this text begins this morning with judge not. As we go against the cultural idea of judgment of today and the cultural idea of judgment in Jesus' time, what does it mean when Jesus says, judge not? The Greek word is krino. It can be used in several different ways. It can be used to make legal decisions. It can be used to discern right from wrong. It can be used to decide what course of action to take or how to make moral judgments or even condemning behavior that we do not like. This word can be used in a positive sense or in a negative sense. So what is Jesus referring to here? Is this a blanket statement where Jesus is saying, don't ever judge anytime ever? Is Jesus commanding that we can make no moral judgments, that we can have no discernment in life inside or outside of the church? I think our immediate and right response is that, of course, he can't mean that. If that's what he means, then why is the New Testament full of commandments that we're to follow? full of tests for those that are in the church and those that are not. And so we need to have some background information to help us understand what Jesus is saying. First, we recognize in the context that really this is a command to believers. He is talking to believers about how to live in the kingdom of heaven, live out this new righteousness, and how they deal with one another. The word brother that appears a couple of times shows that he is talking to a redeemed people and how they are to live out redemption. He's talking about a judgment of discernment, not a judgment of condemnation. But secondly, there would be a group of people, of course, that would be listening, and that would be the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the other religious leaders. 
because after all, they would be curious to know, what is this itinerant preacher saying? They thought they were the ones that were right with God. And as Jesus has done all throughout this sermon, he is challenging the common understanding of what the Pharisees were teaching about the law, about prayer, about fasting, and all the different things that he mentions. And he corrects them. He's warning against their standards of judging. And we do well to listen today. If our righteousness is to surpass that of the Pharisees, we should have a different standard, a different attitude, a different way of action than what might be commonly accepted in the world. And so the issue here is not judgment per se, but with a wrong and condemning attitude. So the first reason we're not to have a harsh judgment towards others is that God is the judge. We're told in the text, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, Jesus, as he has done all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, will make clear that ultimately God is the judge. But I think this speaks to even our common conception today. There's a common theme, or at least a popular theme, that goes on mainly in the, the realm of entertainment and music and the arts that says, only God can judge me. And you'll see it in tattoos, and you'll see it on t-shirts, and you'll see it in posters, and you'll see people put it on their Facebook pages. And whenever anybody points out behavior in their lives that maybe is contrary to the holiness of God, they'll say, only God can judge me. Of course, they don't recognize that in that judgment, they're making a judgment against those who they think are in judgment. But far more importantly, the people that say those kind of things, only God can judge me, need to realize he will. And he is. And it will not be good for them unless they go according to God's ways. You see, far better it is now to hear that you are a sinner and that God does not approve of your lifestyle so you have time to repent and believe than to hear the very same words from God on the day of judgment when it will be too late and he sends you away from his holy presence. So Jesus is saying, if you judge others harshly, you will be judged. Judgment does not need harshness. It does not keep, need condemnation. It needs wisdom to discern what is right and wrong. In this context, Jesus clearly is saying they're using judgment in an incorrect way. And so we might even translate it as condemn not, that you not be condemned. So who's doing the judging here? Well, I think we have what's called a divine passive. The Jews oftentimes were reticent to speak the name of God, and so they would often speak in terms of God doing things, but describe it in a passive way. But I think we all agree, and the scriptures make clear, that God is the one who will render a final judgment on all, whether in condemnation or in commendation, approval or disapproval. And since we know that the one who is sitting on the throne is not anyone here, and is certainly not me, we do well then to exercise mercy and discernment rather than unjustly condemning others. Because it's in unjustly condemning others that we actually call upon God to treat us in the same way. So let God be the one who's the ultimate judge of all. Secondly, the reason why Jesus warns against our harshly judging is that we have the wrong standard. For with the measure you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
And as you say, Jesus is not forbidding any use of judgment. He's saying use proper discernment. The Pharisees had their methods for judging others. They had their ways of determining who was good, who was bad. They had their lists and would judge people who followed their lists, good or bad. But subtly, we have our lists, don't we? Lists that can be made from things other than the inspired word of God. Maybe from tradition or from culture or just from preference. And then we make judgments on others who don't follow our lists that may or may not be inspired by the word of God. Jesus is not saying do not ever judge. He is saying use the proper standards in our judgment. In Matthew 18, he will instruct the church on how to have proper judgment and discipline to protect the purity and holiness of the church. If, in fact, this is a blanket statement to not judge, we can't even continue in Matthew 7. Because in Matthew 7, he will go on in a few verses and tell his disciples to practice wise discernment in how they deal with outsiders. That will require judgment. That will require knowing what is good and what is bad, what is moral and what is immoral. The concern is for the attitude and the reason behind the judgment. You'll notice the word measure here several times throughout this passage. It comes from the market. It's a marketing term. It talks about the exchanging of commodities. And so if you insist on having the wrong commodities in your judgment, you're going to get back the wrong commodities in the judgment towards you. So the key is what is the standard that we are to use. And it's at this point that it is good for us to recognize that our own man-made standards don't cut it. Paul, as he was writing to the church in Rome, warned those who were self-righteous in their view of themselves and their ability to always stand in judgment over others. He said, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. It's the same word used here in Matthew 7. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I think Paul understands the warning that Jesus is giving here in Matthew 7. We can't use our own standards and then issue harsh, sta harsh judgments based upon those standards. Those standards need to be informed, encouraged, and uplifted and upheld by the word of God. So Jesus is against critical attitudes, not critical thinking. We're called to love God with our minds, and he wants us to use our minds as we discern the will of God to know what it is that is true and not true, what is good and what is not good. Use critical thinking, not critical attitudes. As the late John Stott said, do not judge does not mean do not think. When we judge someone with an unrighteous standard, we put our place above them. And Jesus is warning us against that very thing. If God is the ultimate judge, and he is, then he alone sits above all, and he alone is able to give the proper discernment and judgment and a, a, appropriate disapproval or approval of all that is done. I'm helped here by the thoughts of one of my professors at seminary, Dr. Don Carson. He says that believers may have grown in knowledge and understanding. And they can recognize that they grow in knowledge and understanding. They may have experienced measures of grace. But then the temptation comes in for them to misuse what they have received, to misuse what they have done, to misuse what they have learned, thinking that they've now earned the right to sit in judgment upon others. 
And he goes on and says, so I may look askance at those whose vision in my eyes is not as large as my own, or whose faith is not as stable as mine, or whose grasp in the deep truths of God is not as masterful, whose record of service is not as impressive as mine, at least in the eyes of men. This is a great misunderstanding of grace, of the providence of God, of the, the kindness of God as he distributes gifts and experiences and wisdom as he sees fit to his children, who then he instructs to use those things in a way that promotes righteousness, that promotes unity in the church, that reflects the fruit of the Spirit. Friends, this morning, if you have had the experience of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ and have experienced the grace and the mercy of the Lord, and did not receive his righteous judgment against your sins, then should we not be the last to offer harsh judgments? Shouldn't we be the first to offer to others what we ourselves have received, and the last to offer to others what we deserved? We should have a judgment of critique, of criticism, but not a judgment that is condemning. A judgment of charity is what God is calling us to because we have the wrong standards in our own flesh. Therefore, we need to see clearly. The late D.L. Moody shares a story from one of his sermons. He said, years ago, there was a picture in London, in a museum in London. And if you looked at the picture from a distance, you seemed to see a monk engaged in prayer, his hands clasped, his head bowed. But as you came nearer and looked at more detail, you saw that instead of praying, he was squeezing a lemon into a bowl. There's a picture there of the human heart, isn't it? We want to play games. We want people to think we're better than we are. We want to pretend that we're actually more righteous than we are. And what we really need is just God's grace to continue to flow through us. We need divine help to see things from the right perspective so that we will act in ways that are honoring to God. And so Jesus goes on and asks the question, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? We tend to criticize in others what we overlook in ourselves. And the plea is that the mercy that we have received, we are to extend to others. And so Jesus is going to make that clear, and he's going to speak in hyperbolic language. He's going to use two key words here, which as the son of a carpenter, he would truly understand. In English, we translate them as speck and log. Now, someone asked me this morning if I was going to give a lecture on logging. And I have to tell you that as a city boy from Minnesota, I'm the last person that should tell this group how to log. But I can tell you about the word dokos, which is the word for log in the original Greek. It's used for the supporting beam of a structure. It was the type of beam that was used to uphold the ceiling or even the floor to give a, a solid foundation. These dokai, these large beams, which is how this word could be translated, by some accounts were as large as 40 feet long and 5 feet round. The beams were obvious. They were heavy. They could not be missed. You walked into any house, you saw the beam. It was obvious. Everyone would see them. 
by contrast, the speck in the word karphos was something very easy to overlook. It's translated speck here, which is a good translation. It could mean a small piece of wood. It could mean sawdust. But in any case, it's insignificant in comparison to a log or a beam. What is a little pile of sawdust or a small scrap of wood in comparison to a 40-foot beam that's five feet around? I think the Lord has a sense of humor here. I think as the Lord was sharing this story, there was a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face as he is obviously using hyperbolic language to get their attention. You're walking around with these huge planks sticking out of your eyes that are obvious for everyone to see, but you somehow give yourselves the idea of, hey, bro, you got a little piece of dirt there. He says, how can you point out the small sin of someone else when you yourself are involved in sins that are obvious to others? All of us have beams that we need to tend to because none of us are perfect. None of us have achieved that perfect righteousness that will only come when we see Christ face to face. All of us are in transition of growing in righteousness. And so we need to have this spirit of humility that says, Lord, thank you that you've had mercy on me, a sinner. And now help me to have that mercy on others. Because I have a secret for you this morning. The biggest problem we have in the Christian church is not with those people outside. The biggest problem we have in the Christian church is not with Washington, D.C. The biggest problem we have in the Christian church is not even with others in the church. Our biggest problem is with ourselves. Sin blinds each of us to how deeply sinful we really are. And we tend to overlook the depth of sin, the depth that required the deep cleansing of Christ and his cleansing blood. I've been blessed in recent weeks to read through a short devotional by Paul David Tripp called 40 Days of Grace. I highly recommend it to you, 40 Days of Grace. And in one day, as he's talking about uh, obedience and how obedience itself is a work of God's grace, he said this, that, that we overestimate our own spirituality, and we underestimate by far the effects of sin on our lives. He says, sinners tend to not to esteem authority. Sinners like to write their own rules. Sinners are good at convincing themselves that their wrongs are not that wrong. Sinners tend to think they're wiser than they are. Sinners tend to have a moral code that is formed more by their desires than by the law of God. Sinners tend to opt for short-term pleasure over long-term gain. Sinners tend to rebel rather than submit. And he goes on and on, and I found my heart just being laid open. Because that's how I am. And then he goes on and talks about how the miracle of grace works in our lives in such a way that what we didn't desire before, we now desire. We desire to obey. We desire to serve, we desire to love, we desire to lay aside our own selfish, focused desires. It's sobering to think, because we're so good at playing actors with one another, hiding from one another who we really are. It's sobering to think, what would be the reaction if somehow we could encapsulate, encapsulate the thoughts that are coursing through our minds and the images that we form and put them right there. 
Jesus is saying. We all have these things that we're dealing with and we feel like we need to spend more time confessing the sin of our neighbor instead of the sins that we're still dealing with so that we will not have harsh judgments towards them but grow in the mercy that we have received. There is a role for discernment in the Christian life. There is a role for exhorting brothers who are in sinful behavior. But that needs to be done according to the standards of God, not our standards. If we have met the Savior, we've received mercy. And we should extend that mercy to others. And think of it this way. Mercy is actually a display of God's wisdom. It's dealing wisely with what we have received and extending it to others. And because we've received mercy, then it becomes an act of foolishness if we withhold mercy from someone else. And so Jesus says, deal clearly and deal with your own planks before you look at the specks of others. And then you'll be able to help others. You can truly help others. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I was touched this week by a quote from, from Pastor F.B. Meyer, who said that when I see a brother or sister in sin, there are several things that I do not know. One, I do not know how hard he or she has tried to avoid sin. Two, I do not know all of the circumstances that trip him or her up in sin. And thirdly, I don't know what I would do in that same circumstance. Ultimately, we are all dependent upon the mercy and grace of Christ to take the next step in righteousness, to grow in the next step of, of obedience and love for the Lord. There is a role for exhortation. There is a role for encouragement. There is a role for challenging a brother. But it needs to be from a heart that has first allowed the Holy Spirit to be at work in his life not some type of challenge, not to be in the sin inspection business, but to be in the Savior proclaiming business of a Savior who can redeem and set free. I don't know about you, but I have found myself over the years when I have heard an excellent message, when I've heard a, a good sermon at a good conference, and I'll say something to the effect of, oh, I really wish so-and-so were here to hear that. And then when I look inside at my own heart, there were still untended weeds of sin. The word of God is for us to hear and to apply to our lives first before we seek to help others apply it to their own lives. Jesus is using harsh words here. He says, you hypocrite, you faker, you actor. That's what we see in the meaning of it is. And he's chiding those who puff themselves up with a wrong standard, away from the standards of God. And we see examples of this in the scriptures. Think of King David, a man after God's own heart. And think of how greatly he sinned and how many ways he sinned and against how many people he sinned and how many people he involved in his sin. And yet he tried to cover it up for many months. Until Nathan the prophet came and confronted him and told him a story about a little lamb that had been taken away. David was a shepherd. He knew the value of a lamb. 
And he reacted with outrage that such a man should be punished. This, this cannot be right. And Nathan turns to him and says, you're the man. You stole a man's wife. You took a man's life. You involved others in that. Your sins were far greater, and yet you want to point out the sin of one who took a little lamb. You see, he had a log in his eye that he needed to take out before he could see the speck in another. And that's what Jesus says for us. We make sure that we're dealing with the logs in our own eyes before we go around inspecting the sawdust in the eyes of others. But we oftentimes may be used of the Lord to help another brother that is in sin. But we need to do it then in the spirit of Galatians 6.1. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him what? In a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Correction is biblical. Discipline is biblical. Discernment is biblical. But they need to be done in a way that seeks to win the person, not win a power struggle. To win more holiness for the church, to create unity in the church. Not to have a judgmental, harsh, condemning spirit that maybe has forgotten what we have already received in Christ. And maybe it is that we have reached a point in our lives where we've allowed our hearts to become a little calcified. And so we need to ask the Lord to peel away the calluses around our heart. And say, oh God, give me a freshness of, of mercy and grace, understanding the depths of my own need so that I can help someone else in their own need. Take the logs out, then deal with the specks. But there is a time to judge. If this was the only thing that Jesus ever said about judging, we would be a bit confused, but it's not. He does say we need to exercise discernment. He does say we need to exercise judgment. But the difference, as I've said, is between a critical attitude and critical thinking. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. And just briefly, I want to give a few thoughts, stimulate our thinking for this week as we think further on this subject. When is it the proper time to judge? Well, I think we would agree under the weight of the counsel of God to determine right from wrong. There is a time where we need to determine what is right and what is wrong because God has said certain things are right, certain things are wrong. And so we do need to be about the business of judging and discerning. Secondly, we do need to discern truth from error. We are surrounded by religious error. We are surrounded by false teaching. There needs to be a way where we discern that which is true and that which will promote the glory of God. But it needs to be from an attitude of, we have received grace and mercy and truth, we need to extend grace and mercy and truth. And then we can judge when we promote spiritual growth and maturity in others. The wisdom that comes from the counsel of many counselors and helping the church and each member of the church to grow in grace and mercy. Now this is a subject that could take many sermons and we're just going to end this little time of practical teaching here but i commend it to you because we as the people of god we need to put together the whole counsel of god so we can understand how we interact with these different commandments but i think we understand jesus said do not judge harshly but to judge wisely second major point judge wisely 
The text says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In some ways, it's hard to see how verse 6 fits in with this context. Jesus has been dealing with sin in our lives and the lives of others, and then he's going to go on next week. We're going to see he's going to teach us about prayer. And how does this statement fit in light of what's going on in Matthew 6 and 7? Well, let's consider this. He's been warning them in verses 1 to 5 about being too hypocritical, too harsh in their judgment. And I think what he's warning them now against is being too indifferent about the holy things of God. Don't be naive about the reality of evil and evildoers. And so he, would, I think, would say, without being condemning, do not be undiscriminating in dealing with others. I think we would agree then, that's when we need prayer, as we'll see next week. In that light of knowing whether we judge or not to judge, so that we don't judge harshly, but that we judge wisely, it's in that context it's good for us to ask and seek and knock so that we understand how we are to live as God's people, the kingdom of heaven, as we live among the kingdoms of men. There'll be more on that subject of prayer next week. But how do we judge wisely? And why do we judge wisely? Because the things of God are holy. After warning about not judging in a harsh manner, he's now saying don't deal unwisely with outsiders. Think about what we've received in Christ. Think about the holy things that are now ours. The gospel, the church, the word of God, the fellowship of the saints, eternal life, God's truth. These are holy things that God has given to us as he has set us apart to be his wise ambassadors and representatives in this world. If you are in Christ this morning, my friend, you have been set apart. And in your position before God, he says you are holy. And because you are holy, he wants to instruct you how to live out a holy life and how to handle the holy things of God. And so the Christian then needs to learn to handle what is holy in a responsible and wise way. Manner. We need to judge wisely because we're dealing with holy things and left to ourselves who is worthy of these things. But thankfully, we're not left to ourselves. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are His chosen and beloved people. So, with these holy things that we have and that we need to handle wisely... We need to be reminded that there are true enemies of God. Jesus uses tough language here. But he says there are some who are so vicious and so vile in their behavior, in their attitudes, in their words, in their conduct, that he describes them as being as dogs and pigs. Now, in the days of Jesus, they had dogs. But dogs were not these cute, housebroken creatures that we fawn over today. They were vicious, cruel creatures who roamed in packs. They were dangerous hunters. They were vicious predators. They often tore apart everything they encountered. They were despised scavengers who were seen as unclean. They ate what they wanted. They took what they wanted. They tore apart their victims. And Jesus is saying, to such people, do not give what is holy so only they will go and tear them apart. 
Pigs, all throughout the scriptures, were seen as unclean animals who will eat anything. And they're destructive. They could destroy whole harvests and whole fields if left to themselves. They wouldn't know the value of a pearl. It's of no value to them. It's of no beauty. They want to eat acorns. They want to please their flesh. What value is a pearl? So they would try the pearl, they would spit it out, and they would get angry at the one who had fed them something so useless when they want something useful. And there are those, my friends, who are so opposed to the gospel that they prefer the acorns of this world instead of the pearls of heaven. And they will be destructive and dangerous towards the people of God. People who act as dogs and pigs will not respect or recognize the holy things of God. There will be ones who will impugn the gospel, impugn the Son of God, mock Christians, talk disparagingly of pastors and Christian leaders. They will scorn Jesus himself. And Peter warns of such types in his second epistle. All in 2 Peter chapter 2, he warns about false teachers and he says this, what the proverb says has happened to them, these false teachers, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. We as believers are to cherish and respect those holy things of God that he has set apart for his service. But as we go out and interact with a world that is in rebellion against God, We're not to be judgmental, but neither are we to lack judgment. Don't continue to engage with those whose only mission in life seems to be to mock and denigrate the things of Christ. There are those who seem to make it their personal mission to simply destroy the things of God. And think about how our culture treats the sacred things of God today. Think of how our culture treats unborn children, marriage, the identity of manhood and womanhood, and how they scorn the teachings of the church, the teachings of the Lord on these subjects. And part of God's judgment is that he gives people over to the hardness of their hearts and lets them go in the way that they want to go. We will meet people whose only mission in life seems to be to want to destroy the precious things of Christ. Jesus said, just move on. Move on. Deal wisely with others. Do not allow his holy name to be made an object of mockery. You may think that in certain settings you are offering pearls of wisdom and the holy, helpful things of God. And there will be those who will turn and attack considering them as garbage later on in the gospel of matthew jesus will give his instructions on this he will send his people out and listen to what he says in matthew 10 verses 11 to 14 and whatever town or village you enter find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart and as you enter the house greet it and if the house is worthy let your peace come upon it but if it is not worthy let your peace return to you and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word shake off the dust from your feet When you leave that house or town, there is a time in life where we engage with people. We love them. We share the gospel with them. We serve them. But there may be a time that we just have to let them go in their recalcitrance, in their anger, in their wickedness. 
against the holy things of God. We need wisdom to know when that moment has arrived. Because people throughout the history of the church have considered the holy things of God to be rubbish. They've trampled it underfoot. Jesus himself will live out and experience this very truth later on in his life. Is that not what they did to the Holy Son of God? Did they not trample the Son of God underfoot and treat him as something that was unclean, as something that was not worthy? And they put him on a cross and they said, away with him. But of course, that's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus bore that anger, that hatred, that death for us. Experiencing the worst that the dogs and the pigs could throw at him. And because he did, we can now be the pearls of God. The precious holy things of God that can be set apart for his purpose. And he sends us out with wisdom. The wisdom that he lived out and the wisdom that he gives us. We do not know those who will listen to the message and receive it. Grace often acts in surprising ways. And God knows the ones he's going to get. The ones in whom he's going to work. The ones in whom he's going to bring to the cross. But we don't. And so we can offer the gospel freely to all without discrimination, but with discernment. But as we go out, in the words of one commentator, we should neither be inquisitors nor simpletons. We should go out with a holy boldness that's guided by truth, guided by mercy, freely offers the gospel to all, and practicing discernment and not condemnation. Because we are people who have dealt with the logs in our own lives and are dealing with them even as we interact with those around us. Now, next week, as I've said, Jesus is going to bring us back to the issue of prayer. And you see how this is going to fit in with what we've just talked about, how we need to pray to get the wisdom of God. But until we get to that passage next week, what are some application points we might draw from our message today? First, because God is the ultimate judge, we will depend upon his wisdom to judge right from wrong with gentleness and, and truth. We need his wisdom because he is the one that can lead us to judge wisely and to act wisely. Secondly, because we all still deal with sin, we ask God to shed his light on our own hearts and minds before we consider what others are doing. We just need to be honest before God with who we are and what we need so that as we go out and interact with people, there will not be the accusation of hypocrisy or of double-mindedness. We'll recognize that we also are needy sinners who need continuous grace and ongoing mercy from our God. Thirdly, because we have received mercy, we will not be perpetual fault finders in the lives of others, but extend to them the mercy we have received. If God has forgiven us in Christ and will no longer hold our sins against us, he calls us to go out and do the same with others, to no longer hold their faults and sins against them. And then as ambassadors of Christ, we depend on his wisdom to handle the holy things of God in a wise manner before others. We serve a great God. 
And he continually challenges us to seek him first and foremost and above all else because he wants us to see that our ultimate need is him and walking with him. And then divinely directed by him, we can serve him in such a way that is honoring to him as we walk the trails of this earth. Let us pray. Father, in this moment, as we consider the truth of your word and as we consider who you are, as we consider who we are, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? But Father, we thank you that you have had your favor and love upon us from eternity past. And you said, I am going to save those people. And you sent Jesus and you gave us the Holy Spirit so we could understand and grow in that great salvation. So Father, help us to be mindful of what we were before you found us so that we will have that same attitude towards others outside the church and also those inside the church who are still growing just as we are still growing. And Father, may it be that by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to work in and among us that this aroma of Christ and the sweet, fragrant oil of the Holy Spirit would move among us so that our fellowship becomes ever deeper, ever richer, ever sweeter, ever more true. Because we walk as those who have been touched by the mercy of God and will extend that mercy to others. Father, that is a work that only you can do, but would you work in us so that we see it and we desire it and we apply it as you strengthen us with your Holy Spirit, as we pray in the great name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. forgiven